want to say, if you don't know me, my name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, happy Mother's Day. Moms, we're thrilled for you, glad for you. Uh, if you have children and God's great blessing uh, on you and your family and your life. Um, but also, ladies, if you don't have children, we bless you as well. And we're honored that uh, you're part of our church and that you're here. And you need to know that you are loved. I, I, we just want to recognize that Mother's Day is a good day and a fun day. We all have moms, good, bad, and everything in between. And uh, God gave us life through our moms, and so we can be thankful for that. But also recognize that for some, Mother's Day is, is maybe a reminder of a mom who's, who's passed, maybe a mom who wasn't a great mom, and maybe a mom who... Uh, or, or just for, for ladies, you, you desire with all your heart to be a mom. And for whatever reason, God hasn't given you that blessing. Uh, you need to know that uh, your worth, your dignity, your value, we'll see all this this morning, all of those things, uh, none of that is tied up in the fact or f- fact of whether you are or are not a mother. It's that you bear God's image. And, um, you know, I can share just briefly a little bit Hannah and I's own journey with that. Our, our son, we have one son, Charlie, and he's an absolute miracle, we've learned. Um, we have five losses in the midst of that, some pretty serious, where uh, I can tell you the story sometime of watching Hannah pass out in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, thinking we were going to lose her as we lost that pregnancy. Um, but God's gracious, isn't he? And uh, whether you're a mom, whether you're not, just know you are loved deeply. Don't forget that. And uh, we're, we're grateful for you this morning. Hopefully you got a gift on your way in. If you didn't, grab it on your way out. Um, hey, one other thing, uh, as we get rolling, even before we get into scripture, I just want to mention, speak a little bit to some of the events that have happened this week. Um, If you've been living under a rock, you might have missed some of this, but I have a feeling none of you have. Um, This week, uh, you've probably heard reports that the Supreme Court uh, appears to be poised to overturn uh, the decision of Roe versus Wade. That was a 1973 court case that... uh, Uh, resulted in the legalization of abortion on demand in our nation for the last 50 years, and an estimated 62 million unborn children have been exterminated because of that. Uh, It hinged in large part on the idea that uh, we couldn't determine when life began, those sorts of things, but uh, the reality is that, that we don't get to determine that anyway, God does. And he's clear that uh, in his word it begins at conception uh, he writes in Psalm 139, I formed, or the psalmist writes, you formed me, you formed my inward parts, excuse me, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame, the psalmist writes, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there were none of them. Uh, Friends, as we've been reading in Genesis, all of human life is a gift of God. 
And every human being has infinite value, dignity, and worth from the moment of conception to the moment they're crawling into the grave. It doesn't matter uh, where you're from, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what's been done to you, it doesn't matter your intellect, the color of your skin, it it doesn't matter uh, the, uh, the ethnicity of your ancestors, the legality of your citizenship, none of it matters other than the fact that you bear God's image and so you are valuable and worth, uh, worthy of his love and, and you are full of dignity and worth because of that fact. From conception to the grave. And so um, abortion is an awful evil uh, that's not new with our nation, but it's been celebrated in some pretty grotesque ways in our nation. Um, and the reality is, if, if the reports are true and those things do come to pass, if Rose dead, that's a good thing, according to God's word, because it means more children will live. Now, uh, however, that all being said, it doesn't really end anything because the reality is also that abortion will still be legal in many states for many Americans, no matter what the court ultimately decides if they do throw it back to the states. Uh, Access may even be expanded. Taxpayer funding might incentivize more abortions in some states. Depending on the decision, Congress could even pass a law that would uh, take us back to where that decision has has had us for the last 50 years. And so if, again, if the the reports are true, changes everything and it ends nothing, you see? Um, But whatever direction the political winds blow, um, our call is the same, to love people uh, in deed and in truth. Uh, By God's grace to, to come alongside people who see things radically different than we do and to love them. Because Jesus put on flesh, stepped into a world full of sin that was radically different than his holiness. And what did he do? He loved us. And he died on the cross for us. And so by God's grace, uh, our call is simply to love people and uh, pray that the spirit would change the hearts and minds of, of others to see the truth and to awaken to it. Amen? Now, uh, one last thing before we go on uh, after those comments that really probably needs to be said. In a church our size, you know, four to 500 people, uh, the reality is that more than a few of us have been affected by abortion. Um, uh, Some may even not understand the biblical teaching on it and not even see it as as the evil that it is. and some have, have experienced it uh, either secondhand or even firsthand and even made that choice. And you need to know uh, on today, on, on Mother's Day, um, if you've experienced this, uh, if you've chosen to abort one of your children or more, if you've recommended it, if you've financed it, if you've participated in it in, it in any way, uh, chances are that you've carried with you a lot of guilt, a lot of shame over the years, months, whatever it's been, and that all the events of this week have done nothing more than, combined with the fact that today's Mother's Day, stir up that guilt and that accusation more and more. Um, Even the comments I've made maybe have not helped that for you. But if that's you, hear me clearly. There's hope for you. 
There's hope for you. And uh, the reality is Jesus is abundantly clear that if we confess our sin, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to reconcile us, to heal us, and to restore us. And he welcomes you as you return with ecstatic joy and open arms, not with, well, it's about time. No, with, with great joy. And uh, friend, you're loved. Jesus loves you. He forgives you as you confess your sin. He died for you. He endured all the shame, guilt, consequence that you feel. And uh, just know that um, today, if you would trust him, you could know that forgiveness, that freedom, and he would restore you. And there's hope for you. All right, that was a lot to start off this morning and pretty heavy, wasn't it? Uh, Well, let's dive into the text. We're in a series called Bookends, and uh, I've got a couple other bookends with me here this morning. Um, These are actually petrified wood, and you know how bookends work, right? They go on either side of a a stack of books and kind of hold them in place, and we've been looking at the bookends of God's story, of his word. Uh, begins in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we see all those things uh, really repeated and brought to conclusion and fulfillment in the last few chapters of Revelation 21 and 22. And today, what we're gonna see is, uh, so far we've looked at the bookends of of, uh, creation, a new creation, of a garden and a city, and today, we're gonna see how God's story bookends going from wedding to wedding, from wedding to wedding. Um, With that, let me pray, and we're gonna dive into the text together. Let's pray quick. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Lord, I ask for your help just as we unpack your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, might my words be your own. Uh, Reveal to us just what you've written down and what you have to teach us. And uh, Father, uh, we just pray um, for all the things as we've talked about already happening in our culture, in our world. Uh, Holy Spirit, that that your will would be done. You'd help us to live lives of obedience to you with joy and with love for others. And Jesus, we pray most you'd come back soon and fix this mess. We look forward to that day and pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Help us this morning, amen. All right, Genesis chapter two is where we're gonna be at. And do you know, God's God's word, his story begins with an editing, a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. He begins and ends, he loves weddings. And we're gonna see two weddings this morning, the very first wedding, and we're gonna look at the very last wedding in scripture this morning. But first, before we do, grab your Bible, uh, open with me if you have it, and uh, to Genesis chapter two. And we're gonna start uh, in verse 18 this morning. Um, and uh, Rock, I'm just gonna lean on you to control that for whatever, whoa, wait, hold on one second. There we go, I just had the wrong thing selected. Maybe not, there we go. All right, Genesis chapter two. And the first thing I'm, I want, you to, want to show you, we're gonna read in verse 18 here in a moment, is that God created us lacking. He created us lacking, did you know that? He, in other words, he created us incomplete. We were missing something when God created humanity. Like, really, he created us lacking? How so? In what way? 
Well, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 18 answers that question. See, God had created everything and he created Adam and Eve and he said it was very good. And then you get to chapter two and we're circling back again, zooming back in on creation, specifically this morning, the creation of man and woman. And, and God says something profound. He says, but now it's not good. Well, what's not good? It's not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. It's not, it's not good to be alone. According to God's word, it's not good to be alone. He created us lacking. He created us needing and desiring relationship. Um, remember, we're created in his image to some degree, designed to reflect him, to image him like a mirror. But the problem is that when we're left alone, we simply can't image him completely. Do you know that? You, you can't. Because there's an aspect of who he is that cannot be imaged as an individual. Do you know what it is? It's his relational nature. God is Trinity. He's always an eternal loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when, when I'm alone, when you're alone or you're isolated and you're not in community with other people, and especially here in the beginning when there's only one human being, it's not good that he's alone because he can't fully image God and, and know his love and know the joy of relationship and of friendship and ultimately marriage. See, it's not good that the man should be alone, so I'll make a helper fit for him, God says. Now, friends, we are, we're created for relationship. And whether you're single or you're married or you were married or whatever your status is, today we're gonna talk about marriage, but this fact of, of needing relationship isn't confined to marriage. Even if you're single, you need relationship and it, you, you may never get married, I don't know. Uh, but you do need to be in community and in friendship with somebody. God's created you lacking and if you desire to be, I, I pray that you will and I'd love to pray for you toward that end. Uh, but you need to know this applies to all of us this morning in terms of this relational thing. I mean, uh, you look at the last couple of years of wearing masks and the isolation from COVID and different things that happened and we're seeing the effects of that play out in our culture with mental illness, with all kinds of things, just from people being isolated. Why is that? Well, because we're created to be relational. We're created to be in friendship. It's not good to be alone. For those of you watching online, man, I'm glad you can join us in that way. Uh, but someday, hopefully, if you're able to join with us or um, maybe you're just checking us out and you want to join, we'd love for you to be here, to be in relationship uh, rather than alone. So um, notice he's gonna make a helper fit for him. And uh, the helper, uh, when God creates uh, Adam and Eve, he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. The helper, that, the initial helper that God's gonna create for Adam is Eve. It's a female, it's a woman. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Uh, as we read here in Genesis 2, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, uh, those words are important to, to note because by helper, what God means here, or, or what, what Moses means here as he writes God's word is, uh, helper means compliment. A helper. 
somebody who's, who's like him to a degree. And not just any helper who compliments him, but a helper who's suitable, who's fit for him. Your translation might say suitable for him or fit for him. Uh, literally, probably what it means is uh, corresponding to him. Like they're, they're similar in every way. There's some differences, but they're, they're, they're made to complement one another, to correspond to one another. And you're gonna see why this is important uh, because as we go through, uh, Adam keeps going and uh, we, we're told that out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man. He brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what its name was. That was its name. Adam exercises dominion, imaging God in this way, naming all the animals. Um, and by the way, notice uh, every animal was formed out of the ground just like we are. Uh, sometimes people get uh, tied up in the fact that, well, Josh, there's similarities. I mean, what about evolution? I mean, there's similarities between uh, humanity and some animals. What about that biologically? I mean, well, no wonder there's some similarities. God formed us both out of the ground. Doesn't really shake my faith in any way. Uh, verse 20, the man then gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there wasn't found a helper, a compliment that was fit, suitable, corresponding to him. They were all different. They didn't bear God's image. So here's what God does. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while Adam slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And then uh, what God does is he forms a woman out of Adam's rib. Uh, there's a Sunday school teacher who is teaching this passage and, and this story to her class and all of a sudden, uh, one of the little boys said, oh, I'm not feeling good. And they sent him home. They called his mom, got her out of the service. She went and got him. And she grabbed him and she's walking back. And she goes, what's, what's wrong? Are you, you getting sick? Are you going to throw up? Are you going to be okay? And he goes, no, I, I don't know, but I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> God created Eve out of Adam, out of his side. You know, uh, that's important to know. I, I don't think that's by accident that God used a rib from Adam's side. He didn't take something from his head or something from his foot. Nothing from his head that she would rule and reign over him and nothing from his foot that he would stomp on or reign over her, but from his side as a corresponding compliment and helper to him. Uh, Matthew Henry, who was a Puritan commentator, said it well, uh, what I just said. He said, here's how he worded it. The woman was made out of a rib from the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him or his feet to be trampled on, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. That's, that's really well said. Well, uh, here's what God does from that rib. The Lord God had taken from the man. He made into a woman and... Uh, he, he brought her to the man. Do you know what we're watching right here, reading about? This is the first wedding. And God walks Eve down the aisle. He brings her to the man. And uh, then Adam said this. Uh, men, those of you who are married, can you remember your wedding day? Watching your wife come down the aisle? 
and uh, maybe the anxiety and joy and fear and trepidation and excitement all rolled into one emotion in that moment. Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman or woe man. Here she comes, right? <laughs> this, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, notice from the very beginning, we see Eve is taken from Adam's side. Uh, Adam's first words about her are not finally someone to serve me. No, he, he, he says that she's equal. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's, she's like him and corresponding to him in every way. And he's full of joy. Then we read then in verse 24, therefore uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And we read this, that this first relationship was perfect. The, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the focus on this is not the fact that they were naked. It's the fact, that's like junior high us want to laugh at that part, right? It's, uh, no, the fact that they were unashamed. That there was perfect relationship between them. Perfect vulnerability. Perfect love and care. Perfect trust of Adam by Eve and perfect, loving, gracious, godly care on the part of Adam for her. And uh, God created us lacking, needing relationship. And so he gives Adam a helper that's suitable for him, that complements him, that corresponds to him. And what we see here then in this first wedding when, when God brings Eve to Adam and walks her down the aisle is that God invented marriage. He invented it. Do you know marriage is God's idea? It's God's idea. Um, and he loves weddings because he starts his word and he ends his word with a wedding. He loves them. And God's design for marriage is this. We, we see it right here in Genesis. One man, one woman for one lifetime. That's God's design for marriage. That's his plan. Um, this rules out things like uh, Polygamous marriage, it rules out homosexual marriage. Those unions might be um, approved by a, a, our government or another body in, in such a way, but they're, they're not valid according to God's word. Because God's design was for one man and one woman who corresponds to him to be together for one lifetime. He, he creates male and female. Only two sexes defined and coded into our biology. Sexuality and gender are not on a spectrum from one end to the other or fluid in any way. They're defined clearly by God as male and female. He created them. Um, now, that's not to say there's not propensity or even uh, you could argue, I think, even orientation towards those things, towards homosexuality or whatever else. Um, but the sin is acting on it, right? Just like you might be propensed to anger or alcohol or some other thing that you would sin with. The sin is, is acting on it. Um, what about the fact that some people, Josh, are born with multiple 
chromosomes. I mean, uh, things like intersex people who have biological markers that are sometimes both male and female. Well, doesn't science even indicate not male and female, but that sex isn't binary? Well, um, first, uh, those situations are rare and are not very common, though they do exist. But second, the presence of abnormalities like that doesn't negate the fact that there's only two sexes. Just like somebody who would be born with three arms doesn't negate the fact that humans are two-armed beings. Or with 11 toes that human beings have 10 toes. Those abnormalities don't negate what's right. It's just a function of the fall and things are messed up. Now, um, God's design is one man, one woman, one lifetime. And in saying that, again, I'm just stepping on all the landmines this morning. Um, there, there's people in our church, there's family members of people in our church who struggle with these things, who uh, again may not totally um, understand all that God's word teaches on those things even yet. And you need to know if you struggle that way, you're loved. God loves you. He's called you though to a life of holiness and to follow him and to trust him and that his design is best. And when he says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. And he loves you as you are, but he wants to grow you to be more like Jesus. God's design is one man, one woman for one lifetime. You know, two young boys were sitting in a wedding and they were leaning over, one leaned over to the other, he said, hey, how many wives can you have anyway? And uh, he turned back, he goes, well, that's, that's easy, weren't you paying attention? The answer is 16. Four better, four worse, four richer, four poorer. <laughs> but the reality is God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for one lifetime. That's his design period. Now, um, it raises some questions though. For instance, what about guys in the Old Testament who had multiple wives? I mean, that's in the Bible, Josh. What about them? Well, I, I believe that wasn't God's design and they were wrong to have done so. Um, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 before the fall when he talks about marriage and, and divorce and he makes the point that God creates one man, one woman to be in a relationship for a lifetime. He says, haven't you read? Haven't you read Genesis? From the very beginning, God made them male and female, only two sexes and he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So God's desire is for one man, one woman, for one lifetime. So you read about the guys who had multiple wives in the Old Testament, um, they shouldn't have. God's design was one man, one woman, one lifetime. Uh, it's also just a matter of observation of the text. Uh, how many wives did God make for Adam? One. He brought him one woman. Uh, so friends, that's God's design. And then uh, we see here in Genesis 2 the very first wedding. The very first wedding. 
and it's a small private garden wedding. Just a small private affair, perfect weather, outdoors. It's a great wedding. And God brings Adam, his, his bride, and he lays eyes on her, and he is thrilled and excited for the relationship ahead. See, uh, God, the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he, he walked her down the aisle. And then the man said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Well, we've talked a little bit about this first wedding. So what about the final wedding? Do you know there's gonna be a last wedding? And it's between Jesus and his church. It's in Revelation, it's the other bookend. And the last wedding ever is not a small private garden wedding, but it's a massive public uh, urban wedding in a huge modern city. And it's awesome. Complete with a huge party and reception to follow. Where I'm sure there's, I know there's gonna be lots of food. I'm guessing there's gonna be lots of dancing. It's gonna be awesome. It will. Uh, Now, uh, men, for some of you, you may hear this and say, what do you mean, a wedding? I'm marrying Jesus? Um, Well, as the church, remember, marriage was God's idea. And we're gonna see here in a moment that God intended it so that we would just understand the commitment God has toward us. So understand that as we go forward. Uh, Let's read this. Um, I'll actually start in verse six before what you see on the screen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It was like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. John's getting a vision for things that are gonna take place in the future at the end. And then he says this, he hears this. Uh, They say, uh, let us rejoice and exalt and give him, give Jesus the glory for the marriage of the lamb, that's Jesus, has come. And his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It sounds like a wedding, right? I mean, in other words, it's kind of like, all rise, everybody stand, the bride's ready. It's go time, here we go. And, and they're excited and they're rejoicing and exalting in it. And notice, uh, you, you, ever, you, know, you get the first glimpse of the bride coming in, what's she wearing? What's her dress look like? You know? Maybe you look back at the groom. What, what's he looking? What, 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 how, how, how much is he crying when he sees her walk in? But that's always a question. What does she look like? What's she gonna look like? Well, check this out. In this wedding, it's granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It's a white dress. It's a white dress. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, you might read this and couple things, you know that anybody who's trusted Christ is a saint, according to scripture. But you might also look at this, the righteous deeds. Boy, Josh, I don't know, I I don't don't know that I'm gonna be wearing white that day. I've messed up pretty bad in my lifetime. But notice, um, the bride's made herself ready, we read, but the fact that she wore white, why does she get to wear white that's bright and pure and a fine linen in this wedding? because it was granted to her. It wasn't because of anything she did. It, it wasn't because she got it all right. It was that Jesus in his grace 
had uh, died for her on the cross and taken her sin and her shame and her guilt and then clothed her in his righteousness. And it was granted to her to come in his righteousness. And these righteous deeds of the saints, see what happens on the cross when Jesus dies for us is his righteousness is, uh, theologically this term is, it's imputed to us, it's credited to us. It's like debited into our account so that now when God sees us, when you've trusted Christ, he, he no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. He no longer sees you as dirty. He sees you as clean. He, he sees you in the, with the same righteousness of his son, Jesus. That blows my mind. Now, does he still know about your sin? Of course he does. But he's covered it. He's covered it. And he's granted it to her to wear white. You know, occasionally, um, uh, I get the privilege a lot to, to do weddings and occasionally maybe it's a wedding where it's a, a remarriage or there's other circumstances and I'll hear the comment, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I can wear white, Josh. Well, you get to in heaven and what you're doing now is modeling God's commitment to us. So why wouldn't you wear white now? It's granted to you. You're forgiven. Now go live like it. Do you see? That's God's grace and that's what's happening here. And the good news is that after this wedding, we totally will live like it. We'll never mess up again. Like it'll all be fixed, it'll all be done. That will be an awesome day after this final wedding. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, uh, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper, who, who get to stay for the reception afterwards because it means they were, they were part of the wedding and they've been bound in union with Christ in him. And friends, uh, you're, you're invited right now to trust Christ, to, to be a part of this, to give your life to him to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus so that he would grant you his purity, his life, his righteousness. And it's simply an invitation for you to either receive or to reject. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, if you would come to Christ, return to Christ if you need to, He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, marriage was God's idea. He invented it and he did it. I've said this a few times already, but it's really to vividly illustrate his commitment to us. Friends, uh, God's intention for marriage and his invention of it was so that it would, it would show us his love for us. It'd be a picture that we'd see over and over of his love and commitment to us and of our uh, relationship toward him. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 5 when he lays out the roles of husband and wife and all of that he says is as unto the Lord, as, a, as an act of service to God. And um, the thing that... that God is demonstrating here is covenant love. Covenant love. 
As we wrap up, I wanna take you to one other passage in Genesis to demonstrate uh, this idea of covenant. See, uh, a lot of times in our culture, we sign contracts, right? Why do we sign contracts? Because none of us are trustworthy by nature. I sign a contract saying, I'm gonna keep up my end of the bargain, and if I break it, then here's the repercussions if I break it, right? Or I can break it if you don't hold up your end, and then I'm out, right? And we just kind of sign our name on the line, and covenants are marked by mistrust, and they're necessary because we're not trustworthy, and they're for a distinct period of time. They define the limits of my responsibility to you. And and sadly, this is how our society has come to view marriage. But remember, God invented marriage, and his design for marriage is that it's a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Contracts are based on mistrust, but covenants are based on trust. Contracts define limits to our responsibility, but covenants have unlimited responsibility. Contracts can be voided by mutual consent, but covenants can't be broken. Um, And so I wanna give you one example of a covenant and how this would go down in scripture. Genesis 15, Uh, there's a guy named Abram who would later become Abraham, and God makes a commitment to him. He says, Abram, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you a great land, and uh, I'm gonna just bless your socks off and all of your descendants. The problem was, though, in giving him a lot of descendants, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And not only was she barren, but uh, she was old. No offense to anyone who is old, but... uh, Sarah was old. In fact, uh, she ends up not giving birth until uh, in her 90s. And, uh, but leading up to this, Abram and Sarah are both already uh, approaching 100 sooner than later. And uh, God comes to Abram and he says, uh, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward's gonna be great. Remember that promise I made to you? It's gonna be awesome. And Abram goes, okay, he looks at the circumstances around him and he, he prays, okay, God, yeah, you're gonna bless my, uh, my servant's son, you know, uh, Eliezer, and uh, you haven't given me any offspring, so that's, that's how you're gonna work, just in, in my household. And God's like, no, 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 I'm gonna bless your son, the one you're gonna have with your wife, Sarah, your biological son I'm gonna bless. Now, Abram, as old as he was at this point, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, really? I don't know about this. But check out what scripture tells us. Abram believed the Lord. He believed what God said. And then what did God do? He counted it to him as righteousness. That's that imputed righteousness. It was granted to him. All he did was simply believe. And if you would believe upon the Lord Jesus, the same thing would happen to you. His righteousness would be granted to you by that belief. But even after he believed, Abram still had some doubts. He said, "Um, okay, Lord, but how am I supposed to know? Like, help me know, help me. Help my unbelief. That's kind of his prayer here. And it's a valid question. How am I to know? that this is gonna happen. And God said, uh, here's what I want you to do, Abram. Bring me a heifer that's three years old and a female goat and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. 
And Abram, he went and, and brought these, all of them, and then he cut them in half, meaning like head to toe, right down the middle. And he laid each half over against the other. He like filleted them out on the ground. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And then uh, we read, uh, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram, he, he drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What, what's happening here? And Joshua, this, you took a weird turn. We were talking about marriage and weddings and now you're talking about filleting heifers and walking through them. And here's, here's what this is. This is how covenants were made in the ancient Near East. It, it's called cutting a covenant. Those two words go together often in Hebrew. And rather than signing a contract, you would cut a covenant. And what would happen in that covenant is you would uh, gather uh, a party here and the party you're cutting the covenant with and they would have their friends and maybe family around and you'd make a commitment of what your covenant was between one another. And as a symbolic act of that, you would take uh, some animals and you would uh, slice them down the middle, head to toe, fillet them out, and then whoever initiated that covenant would walk down what they'd refer to as the blood path between them first, symbolically saying, hey, everybody's here watching. If I break my end of this commitment, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Hold me accountable. And then the second part, party of the covenant would walk through and uh, say the same thing. And he'd walk down the middle and, hey, if I ever break my end of this commitment, let whatever happened to these animals happen to me. And they would commit to hold them accountable to that. Well, do you know uh, Christian weddings are based on that same symbolism? Think about a wedding and the, the covenant love between a husband and a wife. You show up, and at a traditional wedding, this doesn't always happen now, and it's not a huge deal, but this is just the symbolism traditionally, is that uh, the groom and all of his family and friends would be on one side, and then the bride would show up with all of her family and friends, and they usually would sit on the other side. And then the person to initiate the covenant, the groom, would first walk down between these parties, wouldn't he? And he'd walk to the front. And then uh, coming next after him would be who? The, the secondary party of the covenant, the other one who's involved in it, and she would come down the aisle between both parties of people. And then after they did that, they would make this covenant together and uh, saying, we're, we're covenanting ourselves to one another before God and we're to love one another for the rest of our life. It's unending, no limits to our responsibility. And you all are watching. Hold us accountable. Thankfully, uh, somewhere along the line, they took out the split animals for a wedding ceremony. I'm grateful for that one. But there's symbolism in all of that of the way a covenant was cut. And that symbolism in a wedding then goes back to the symbolism of God committing and covenanting himself to us. Let me show you one more thing about this covenant as we wrap up. Um, God uh, reiterates his promises and then in verse 17, we read this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, fire was often a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament, passed between these pieces. The initiator of the covenant passes through saying, if I break my end of this covenant, 
let what happened to these animals happen to me. Guess who never walks the path? Abraham. In other words, God takes the full responsibility to love him, to keep him, to grow him, to keep his commandments. It's not on Abram. Abram's to follow him and to honor him for sure with his life, but it's ultimately not on him. It's on God. And marriage, that unending covenant commitment to one another is a reminder to us that even in the midst of brokenness in marriage, God's covenant to me is unending. And I can trust him through it all, do you see? So we should hold fast to him. Hold fast to the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 says to hold fast to your God and serve him. And so that's really our response to his love, to abide in him, to hold on to him, to trust him. So with that, let me pray. We're gonna sing and then we're gonna call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for your steadfast love that it endures forever toward us. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, hold us fast. So help us hold fast to you and abide in you. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.